0: Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the Strong by Design podcast show. This is your host today, Coach Chris Wilson. And I am uh, super pumped to have a conversation with a man who has been part of my life now for the better part of 10 years. And I've uh, come to know him, spent time with him, and learned uh, a great deal from this man uh, over the years. And it's uh, this conversation is actually long overdue, as I was just telling him before we hit record. And so it's a real treat for not just me, but for all of you listening today, uh, you're going to get so much out of this conversation. Uh, and it could be a life changing conversation, uh, to be honest with you. Before I introduce our very special guest today, I do want to say a few things. I want to first thank you so much for choosing the Strong by Design podcast show. There are so many a hundred, you know, hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there in the world today, but you've chosen our show, or if you're a first-time listener, you've landed on our show for the first time. And so I want this experience to be, uh, you know, everything that you deserve, which is uh, just a really good, deep discussion on a topic that's extremely serious, but we're talking to a, uh, an expert in, in this area. Um, number two, what I'd like you to do is uh, at the end of this episode is please share this with someone who needs to hear this conversation or, or who can benefit from this conversation today. Uh, certainly there's a friend or a family member or you know, just somebody, maybe a coworker that you would love uh, to share this with. So please go ahead and do that. It just takes a couple of clicks and lastly, uh, hit that five-star rating and review at the end of this conversation today because that really helps our show. Uh, when we get these ratings and reviews, it helps our show move up and uh, and become more visible for other people interested in a good podcast. So uh, I thank you so much uh, in advance for all of those things. So let's introduce uh, today's special guest that I'm so amped up for. It's Mr. Mike Gillette. He is a world-renowned tactical trainer and fear management expert. He has trained more elite agents and individuals in the art of handling complex situations than anybody else. That's truth. Mike is truly the embodiment of, of toughness. He is one of the smallest and weakest kids in his class, who grew up in a household overwhelmed by domestic violence and substance abuse, and he overcame all of that to become to become a real life superhero or action hero if you want to call it Uh, mike's resume is unbelievable it reads much like a novel and these are just some of the highlights of his amazing career he's an in-demand tactical trainer for elite government agencies such as the fbi the dea the dhs and the tsa he's an army paratrooper a swat commander a member of the martial arts masters hall of fame a counterterrorism consultant to the Department of Homeland Security, he has over 25 different use of force and weapon systems instructor designations to his name. He's a bodyguard, was a bodyguard to Fortune 500 executives and film stars, such as somebody like Sylvester Stallone, who you may have heard of. Uh, and uh, he's a feats of strength expert. He's a record-setting strongman who has been featured in Ripley's Believe It or Not and Guinness World Records. These are just some of the many amazing things that this man uh, has done in his life, and uh, I'm just so honored to have you on the other side of this conversation today, Mike. Thank you.
1: Well, I appreciate that, Chris. Great to be with you today.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, And, you know, before we get into the material, because I'm anxious to to talk about this topic with you, uh, I want to uh i want you to just share a little bit with our audience uh about kind of who you are as as a as a man right now as a as you know i just wowed people with all these amazing things right they're like geez who is this guy you know but you're you're also a husband your father your grandfather you're you're uh, a man of god You, you got a huge heart and you give back a lot to uh people in your community and stuff. So I, if you would just talk a little bit about, uh, about that, the softer side of Mike Gillette for a moment, if you, if you softer would
1: side of Mike Gillette, <laughs> I don't know. That's, uh, it's, it's interesting. I think that's probably the way we typically characterize that aspect of it. But for me, the, the sort of, sort of the resume version of me with, you know, all of the, uh, the action accolades or, you know, whatever we would describe all of that as, um, none of that would have really been possible if I didn't have sort of the, the other aspect of myself, you know, so married, been married uh, for nearly 40 years, four kids, uh, eight grandkids at at present, that number is fluid, always changing. And uh, Juliet family's very fertile, turns out the, um, but for me, uh, that, that aspect of who I am, you know, as, as a, you know, husband, father is so um, important in terms of giving me sort of the, the sense of, I don't know, mission, if you will. It, it sort of anchors me to my values. You have to have that uh, if, if you have spent. A lot of time living in what I'll refer to as a life of service, basically meaning, you know, nobody goes in the military to get rich. Nobody goes into law enforcement to get rich. And, uh, well, maybe they do, but they're just sadly misinformed. But uh, when, when you are that person, there needs to be a reason for it. And, you know, for me, uh, you know, I always, I'm very grounded by my family relationships and just relationships in general. And there, there's sort of a duality to me. I think, I think it's uh, present in a lot of the, the people that I've known and worked with or mentored by, uh, yeah, there's sort of the hard edge part, but there's, there's also the, you know, the very human part, you know, you have to, uh, be connected to that. You need to be able to feel things very deeply in order to feel compelled to live a certain way. And, uh, you know, I, I never really felt as though I was giving up anything or sacrificing anything to to pursue the different things that I have. There was always a very uh, compelling rationale for all of that. And much of that really sort of stems from, you know, who I am, you know, as a family man, you know, as, as a person of faith. So, all of that is is very much linked, even though they seem sort of, you know, uh, diverging. You know, uh, when people look at me online, they either get you know, this version, I mean, I look like this all the time, monochromatic wardrobe, uh, usually glowering or, uh, you know, grinning like an idiot in, because I'm at, uh, you know, some school during a presentation or I'm, you know, working with athletes or so forth. So it's, it's, that's, they're both true, uh, representations of me and, uh, sort of one one feeds the other, you know, they, they both need to be strong for me to kind of, you know, be centered for me to feel like who I uh, believe I am and, uh, you know, to, to be as strong as I possibly can. I have to be in yeah. touch with all of that.
0: Yeah. And I think that'll serve what you just said there will serve us very well deeper in this conversation when we get to a certain part uh, when uh, women are, are brought up in this whole uh, area of, of self-defense. Um, okay. And I know there's something that you can tap into there that kind of draws from what you just were speaking on, uh, the the importance of relationships and all of that other stuff that is so meaningful to you in your life when you live a life of service in law enforcement and in all of that uh, other work there that seems so much, uh, like you said, just different from you know, Mike Gillette at home with his family versus Mike Gillette out on the streets uh, and 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 servicing his community. So uh, very different. Uh, before we get into really what where I want to start with this material, what is one of the standout uh, situations you could say, or memories or experiences that you had uh, in law enforcement or tactical training? that is something that you're uh, able to share? with the audience it just gives them a little bit of more insight into things that you've, uh, been through, that you've lived through that, uh, seem, you know, like, (laughs) wow. Uh, that's, that's impressive. That doesn't sound like a good day.
1: Um, okay. I'm, I'm actually gonna go in maybe, uh, in unexpected direction. Uh, one is just going to be a brief reminiscence that relates to training And the other is going to be a example of don't do the things I did on this particular day when I was very much a novice, you know, as in as what we might refer to as a conflict interventionist. Uh, So the first thing that um, pulled at me when I was a cop is I got uh, very involved very quickly in the world of training. And when I say training, I mean the training of other people. That was uh, a world I sort of, you know, fell into quickly and I found that there was something there that was was pulling at me uh, consistently. So, you know, my, my cop career kind of went like this. I, had, I was this guy, you know, I would you know, drive a car, arrest bad guys, do all of that stuff. But at the same time, I was getting pulled in different directions, uh, teaching different agencies, different things. And... Uh, and I could tell that this was probably going to be my destiny. Uh, and, you know, there there was sort of a tension between the two because, you know, I, I felt very uh, drawn to be part of both of them. But as I, I got more involved in training, uh, there were certain things that kind of validated uh, what I was doing. And one of those uh, was something I'll, I'll share now. And the reason I'm sharing it is because what we're ultimately sort of talking about is a project that we all sort of collaborated on, uh, not t- too distant past, and the, the subject matter is serious and might lead some people to think, well, you know, is, is that stuff I can even learn remotely? Can I learn that, you know, f- from videos? Is this guy even going to be able to communicate things in a way that, you know, makes sense, the information would be accessible? So when I started uh, training cops, there was a, a very fixed curriculum that was approved uh, at the state level. And that's, that's what cops could be taught. You could not go outside of that. And that was fairly common, you know, nationwide. Each state sort of had their own take on it, but they were remarkably consistent, you know, from sea to shining sea. In any event, uh, the, in my early uh, training days, that curriculum had been fairly static for a period of time. And that meant that, let's say you went through the police academy, you were taught all of this stuff. And then you would have an in-service training, you would be retaught all of this stuff. Another year goes by, you're being retaught all of this stuff. And so when I was originally sort of, you know, blessed off as an instructor, I was essentially just a curator of this particular stuff. So, you know, I wasn't being called upon to be an innovator, you know, or a problem solver, just a perpetuator of this particular gospel, which had already been sort of, you know, sanctioned. Uh, so, I would uh, teach the same stuff that people had been being revisiting for a period of years. But what people would tell me uh, is that that's the first time I've understood this particular technique or that particular technique. I've never actually been able to do it on my own without forgetting one of the steps. And that led me to think that maybe I've, I've got something as instructive that's a little different. Now, it's not about, you know, when you're teaching stuff that has to do with this, uh, there's a misconception that, you know, the only people that teach that stuff you know, is the baddest guy in the room. But there, there's a little bit of that in that people will test you. But that's not the prerequisite. If you're a good instructor, you have the ability to communicate effectively, to break things down. And I think my secret weapon as an instructor all these years is I'm not a natural. I'm not a natural at anything. Um, I would be in classes with guys. They could see a technique demonstrated once. Okay, got it. That It was like crazy. It was, it was like a magic trick to me. How do they do that? I was never that guy. I had to be sort of, okay, explain it to me. Now make me, move me through the technique. Okay, now talk me through the technique while I do it. Now, once I got it, then I have it. Uh, and once I have it, I can sort of reverse engineer it from a variety of directions. So if I've got 20 people in the room, I can explain this 20 different ways and get everybody to that place. So the reason I mentioned that is simply there are some things that we sort of accept are reasonable to learn via video, like say a language, but you know, move, moving uh, in opposition to somebody who's moving in opposition to you who wants a completely opposite outcome in a situation than you do, and the operational tempo of that scenario is very high uh, and, and dangerous and confusing, uh, yeah, you can learn how to deal with that stuff via video if it's being presented in the right way. And I do believe that's something that we accomplished when we put all of that material uh, together back in in Florida. So that's not really an exciting story. So here (laughs) here we go. (laughs) Well, no, I'm going to disappoint you once more because this story is not exciting, but I think it's, it's important to understand. When I was fresh out of the Academy, I, I was in what's referred to as the field training program, and that's pretty standard, you know, coast to coast. You don't just take somebody out of the academy and throw them into the mean streets. They they know things in a theoretical sense. They don't really understand things in a practical context. So a field training program is typically you get paired up with a succession of experienced officers and they First, you kind of watch them do stuff, and then over time they start to watch you. They're still there if you you know get brain locked and don't you know things, things are deteriorating fast, which can happen. Uh, but their job is to basically sort of gradually switch roles with you and in an ideal scenario, you have different sorts of cops with different sorts of approaches uh, that work different times of the day because each shift has its own sort of dynamic. Uh, So I had just finished UCAD and I crushed academy to death, set fitness records. I was the honor grad. I was in the newspaper. Um, It all conspired to make me think I knew far more than I did. And alas, I did not. So the, the field training program was bearing that out like on a hourly basis you know, as I was just like, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do, or, or I thought I knew what to do, but what I thought was incorrect. So um, I'm only a couple of weeks into this program and I'm tossed onto the midnight shift, a very instructive uh, setting for, for young Mike. And we, it's probably 2.15 AM and it's February, it's Midwest. So like, Winter is is actual winter, so like you know we've got all the coats on and all of that, the gloves, and we would just been uh, dispatched to check on a hit and run accident. Somebody had called nine one one and said a guy had plowed into a street sign, backed up into a stop sign, uh, sideswiped the street sign again, and then just left. And there was no, there would have been no question that had you been the driver, you knew you'd hit something. So you're you're supposed to you know, leave, call the police, or not not leave, rather, uh, call the police and say in an accident, an officer would come out, assess the damage, and you know, do some paperwork, and that would be that. But as so often is the case at after 2 a.m., people who are in one vehicle accidents, well, they tend to not stick around because statistically they all tend to be drunk. Uh, so we reasoned, even novice me reasoned that. You know what we need to be looking for is potentially a drunk driver in the area as we get there. Uh, you know to check things out. We almost get there; we're about a half a block away, and we get pulled off of that to respond to an unknown disturbance. And you know we get the address, and it's apparent that the disturbance is taking place about two blocks from the accident. That's that's correlation. That's a, that's a clue that maybe. These two things are related. Even I was picking up on that with uh, my, my lack of experience. So we pull up to 1195 6th Avenue. Yeah, I remember the address six years later. I have a weird head for disparate data. Um, sadly, no useful information, but uh, th- things like this. So I get out of the squad car. It's crazy cold, and I hear this unearthly sound. What is this? It sounds like someone's howling at the moon, but maybe it's a dog, but it kind of sounds human. What is that? Well, no time. Got to run up the steps because we're going to apartment eight, which is on the third floor. No problem. I've got cardio for days. You know, I'm fresh out of the Academy. Anyway, I'm about to knock on the door, but the door is standing open. And what do I see? Two things, female, middle-aged, bleeding from the face, Okay, clearly she's been assaulted and I see a shirtless man. This was my first encounter with somebody shirtless. You watched cops, you know, that whoever is not wearing the shirt, that's the guy who's going to jail (laughs) anyway. And and that that came true this night and many subsequent to that. So shirtless guy, his name is Corey. I find out that out later has slid open the balcony uh, window and he is literally howling at the moment. That was the sound I heard when I got out. Like, he's still yelling out the window. Not words, just sounds. This guy is next level intoxicated. So in I go. Uh, my field training officer tends to the female. I'm, I'm moving towards the guy who's, you know, obviously the, the aggressor. Now, it turns out this is his mom. He doesn't live there, but he had no place else to go after smashing up his car. So he broke in the door. She presumably yelled something and got punched in the face for her trouble. Now, so far, we've already satisfied the requirements for domestic assault, which is a mandatory arrest situation. But I need to sort of go through the, uh, the rigmarole. I'm Officer Gillette, in police department, there's uh, some ID, blah, blah. So I'm trying to talk to this guy as though he's a, a rational human a guy who is shirtless yelling at the moon and unable to form words, but I'm still a new guy. I'm still just, you know, very much by the book and he's just looking at me and responding with grunts. And uh, it becomes apparent that there's no productive dialogue that's going to take place. So I already know he's going to jail. We'll work out the drunk driving stuff and the hit and run stuff later. So I, I, I tell him to uh, turn around, place his hands behind his back. He's under arrest for for domestic assault and he doesn't. Well, that's not supposed to happen. This is like literally I'm serving since Tuesday on on my badge. I have not had a lot of uh, experience with oppositional behavior and he's just looking at, and I kind of pause and it's like, okay, he's not doing what I asked. I'm going to need to, to move him. So I step uh, closer and by this time, now here's what I didn't know. Everyone knew who this guy was and everyone, all the other officers knew that every time he has to deal with the police, a, he goes to jail, but B after a crazy fight, he always fights. Every arrest he had was accompanied by a resisting arrest charge. And I knew The other officers wanted to see Gillette with his first experience with Corey. So there are now three other cops standing behind me, not, not to help to watch because this is sort of an indoctrination, if you will. Let's let's see how he, how he does.
0: Our team would like to thank you so much for listening to the strong by design podcast. And if you're enjoying today's show, Please share this episode with at least one friend or family member who will benefit from this message and please subscribe. So you don't miss any future episodes. Go to strong design podcast.com. That's strong by design podcast.com.
1: Let's get back to the show. So not only does Corey not turn around, place his hands behind his back as politely requested, I noticed that he has just swung it. Now, do the math. That's literally what I was thinking in my head. What is this guy thinking? There's four cops literally like right here. There's, there's no way that this goes well for him. I mean, it's it's about to not to. But this whole time, like this this fist is traveling through the air. And this is the important part of the story. I'm having a conversation with myself while watching this fist traveling towards my face, I distinctly remember this conversation 30 plus years later. Why is he doing this? What does he think is going to happen? I mean, I'm, I'm literally asking these rhetorical questions that are meaningless in the context of somebody who's trying to knock your block off. And at some point, I interrupt myself and I say, I'm going to have to do something about this. I literally said that, that, that bizarre remark. So I blocked it just like I was trained and then, you know, grabbed his, took him down on his stomach, handcuffs, boom, bum, bum, just like the rodeo. But I will never forget that ridiculous moment where I'm having this conversation all up in here instead of actually dealing with what's taking place. If he hadn't have been so drunk, if he'd been a little faster, he could have easily broken my jaw. But in his diminished capacity, I somehow was able to have this entire conversation with myself before I got clocked on the job. So the moral of that story is there is a time for contemplation. You need to know when it isn't that time. That was an example of it not being the right time for contemplation. That was a time for letting, you know, instinct and training take over, which it eventually did thankfully but uh, it could have gone in a whole different direction wow. just because I, I sort of froze up on the unreality of why he was doing something so entirely illogical.
0: Right. And, and being such an inexperienced uh, police officer, patrol officer at that point, you're just a suit. You went in there assumptively with the assumptive mm-hmm. close. As soon as I asked this guy to do what I say, he's going to, do what i say.
1: There and were four <laughs> of us. Why wouldn't he? Right? right? Because the what would a rational person do? Oh, okay. Even if i wanted to fight maybe one or two of you, i don't want to fight four. It's like, but i was not prepared for what was irrational, what sort of was, you know, what existed outside the bounds of my own frame of reference. Now, 6 weeks later, that was a whole different version of me. Because, you know, by sheer repetition I had become fluent in the ways of illogic, which is something that you know, kept me you know, safe and in uh, ambulatory uh, for a number of years. What's interesting is over the years, I had numerous people uh, try to fight me. I was never hurt. I was never the big guy there. I'm, I'm average size, always have been. Uh, but that, making that tactical error, that particular night that stayed with me i i was embarrassed for myself it's like i can't believe i was just like i was there but i wasn't you know mentally i was checked out i was having this third person conversation the entire time it was ridiculous but i had to sort of you know pass through that in order to become somebody who was a little bit more intuitive a little bit more proactive in terms of how he approached situations and interactions from that point on Wow. So, yeah. That's remember when I said I'm not a natural. There's another example of that. You know, I, I had to experience certain things to get to a point of clarity. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah, without question, it it makes it makes total sense, and it's a good transition to lead into really just the the topic of of the conversation. The main topic, the core conversation here today, is talking about what real life self-defense is uh, and why we made it and how different it is from everything else that's out there. And we can dig right into really the first point that I wanted to make was the lack of preparation, much like what kind of like those feelings that you were experiencing on that night, um, where you were kind of not there. You know, you were mm-hmm. not, you were experiencing something you weren't anticipating, you know, you're questioning why these things were happening. Um, and the shocking fact is that most people in these highly pressurized situations will will crumble or will fail or will make mistakes. Um, and, you know, and, and I'm talking obviously about people being in a life or death situation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and a lot of people out there, I don't think You know, they don't realize that, you know, it's things happen extremely fast and uh, you oftentimes before you even can respond or react to them. Um, But are there things that people can do that can to avoid these mistakes, to fix things uh, quickly when they're in a situation like this,
1: you know? Well, I I think that's a very important question, and uh, there's s- sort of a, a two-part answer to that. And the first thing is that uh, where most people, male-female, uh, go awry in their thought process is the initial unwillingness to contemplate certain realities. Uh, and It's that that's even more of a thing for women, uh, because women have a a greater burden in terms of managing their own safety. You know, as as a man, I have never had to have a natural distrust of half the world's population. Women don't have that luxury. So if you carry that burden around, anytime you don't have to think about it, you're probably going to elect not to think about it just for some temporary relief from that whole uh, issue. What you need to do is to devote a few minutes, you know, male or female, to the fact that certain things can happen in in this world, certain unpleasant things. Now, there are certain unpleasant things that we don't seem to have a lot of difficulty coping with the idea of, okay, getting into a car accident. You know, every time you get into a car, uh, somebody may, you know, try to take you out by just being inattentive. You know that when you live in a house or a condo, that uh, there might be a fire. Some people take the step of getting a fire extinguisher. Uh, if you've done that, you've at least contemplated the reality of a fire. If you want to see someone uh, have problems functioning in a fire, it's because they've never thought about it ever. You know, if X happens, I'll do Y. They've never even done that. The people who, you know, prevail, get out safely, maybe even, you know, do a little uh, f- fire containment on the, on their way out with their extinguisher are people who have simply thought about it. And, you know, in the same way, uh, you know, if, if I ever get lost, here's what I'm going to do, here's what I'm not going to do. Uh, if somebody approaches me, here's what I'm going to try to avoid, here's what I'm, I'm going to be willing to do. And if you... If you can get yourself to sort of engage with an inherently difficult topic, which this is, um, that, that's going to be time well spent. You don't have to obsess about it. I think one of the misconceptions about dealing with violence is you have to become somebody who's perpetually paranoid, who you know, is you know, walking around with you know all kinds of crazy weapons on themselves and you know, shooting everybody as sort of a mad dog glance and what what? Um, you know, it's not that at all.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Strong by Design podcast. This episode is brought to you by reallifedefense.com. Nobody ever expects to be attacked until it happens. The world's most experienced tactical trainer, Mike Gillette, reveals the number one move to survive and defend yourself in any situation. Visit reallifedefense.com to know how to handle yourself if the worst ever happens to you or your family. That's reallifedefense.com.
1: One of the things that I think surprises a lot of people uh, when they hear about my professional background is it's, it creates in their mind, oh, this Gillette guy is probably wired tight. He's probably super intense. He's probably very difficult to be around. Now, I might be difficult to be around for other reasons. Uh, it's just this personality. But when people are around me and they're getting to know me, one of the things that they seem generally surprised by is, man, Mike, you're like the most laid back guy I've ever seen. I figured you were just going to be like, just, you know, just, just looking for stuff to happen, man, just, you know, ready for something to twist off. It's like, no, no. And the reason for that is um, I have, you know, through through sheer repetition. Uh, through the thinking of the contemplation, the practical experience, the, the training, um, there's nothing magic or mystical about violence to me. It just, it, there's no fascination there. It's just a thing that happens sometimes. When it happens, I have a plan. And uh, it, it doesn't have the, the sort of foreboding significance for me. Just because I have uh, grown fluent with that language, well, anybody can. You don't have to be a martial arts master to to be, you know, to know enough of the language to survive. You can you can do some damage. You can sort of uh, recalibrate an assailant's thought process to the point that they kind of lose enthusiasm, you know, for what they're doing, and you know that they move on. Uh, that doesn't take a lot of training. It's, it's very easy to do mechanically. The complexity is all here. Mm. It's getting you to do it, getting you to do it under the inordinate stress of somebody who's you know screaming at you, it's dark. Uh, every assault scenario is a stimulus-rich environment. And that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult uh, to, to function effectively uh, from a psychological uh, perspective. It's just because you haven't put yourself in that position. Anyone who's ever considered... Uh, waking up in the middle of the night, you know, going to get a drink of water. and Oh, it looks like my house is on fire. We all just kind of assume that's going to be real scary. So when we encounter it and it is scary, there's no surprise. It's like, yep, this is just as horrible as I imagined. But nobody really knows what this is going to be like, you know, to have somebody, you know, this close, you know, and I mean, you can just feel their hot breath and they're, they're screaming horrible things at you and their eyes look crazy, you know, and they've grabbed you and they're shaking or whatever it is they're doing. If you've never had that it's so overwhelming, and you don't do your best problem solving when you're overwhelmed yes uh, and, uh, it's
0: such a i I love the analogy that you made because uh even when we're children we're taught the stop drop and roll thing you know and to mm-hmm. to get low if you're you know to avoid the smoke you know and and all right. these things. And, and so we're, we, from a young age, we've all had to put ourselves in, the, in that mental state of how would I respond? How would I react? How would I move and, and yeah. operate in a situation that where my life is threatened? But uh, most of us don't live in a world where we physically feel like someone else, another person, man or woman, It would threaten us with physical harm, how we would respond in that situation. I think Mm -hmm. it's, and like you said, you don't have to live in that for an excessive amount of time. It's just kind of like, have some quick, you know, quick thoughts about it. Something that, you know, if this happens, then I should probably do Y, you know, if if X happens, Mm -hmm. I should probably do Y and just go through those mental, uh, that role playing a little bit. And, and I think that you know just just doing that alone, like you said, could give you a leg up uh right. on handling a situation that's scary and frightening like that
1: very very much the case and what bears that out is you know every day uh people are assaulted the ones who deal with that successfully uh were not trained they just had a particular mentality they they were they were uh, willing to resist this the situation that was being sort of uh, forced upon them and they said nope not today uh, I taught a class a couple of years ago the, the name of the class was improvised weapons so that 's just basically using any object in the environment as a weapon now here 's what was ironic there was a woman in the class and i didn 't know this until the end of the day uh, which was probably good because I would wanted to use her as an example because I Turns out she was this amazing woman. So middle-aged woman lives alone. It's early evening. She's vacuuming. She's got like the the kind of vacuum, the canister drags on the floor, and it's got like the hose, and then she's got like the metal tube. Okay, home invasion scenario. Guy breaks into her house to rape her. She immediately takes the vacuum tube and just starts wailing on the guy until he runs away. So. Who should have been teaching improvised weapons classes? you know the first question that comes to mind <laughs> It's like I know stuff, but she's like battle tested wow So, but um that was just uh, the success came from a decision that she made i'm I'm not going to just accept whatever happens because if she did, that would have turned out a whole different way, you know and and not in a way that anyone would feel good about recalling later. So uh, the decisions that we make ahead of time can only be made if we're willing to contemplate the topic in the first place. You know, so the the way that I try to break that down is, you know, decide ahead of time, you know, under what circumstances you're willing to fight. And if you're willing to fight, how far are you willing to go with that? You need to know, uh, because if you haven't thought about it, you're, you're going to do what most people do under extreme stress. You know, everyone talks about you know fight or flight. You know, the idea that something happens, there's this catalyst event. You get this shot of uh, adrenaline, which can theoretically you know make you run fast to run away from the saber tooth tiger. You know, thousands of years ago, or you know to fight the saber tooth tiger bite by punching him in the face, which would be pretty cool. Uh, but there's there's another uh, more statistically common outcome, which is technically referred to as hypervigilance. It means you just freeze. There's so much going on, just kind of like, ugh. Now, you don't freeze forever, but if you freeze for three seconds, three seconds is an eternity if you're being assaulted. You know, horrible things have just happened, and now you're in an irretrievable situation. You know, if you've taken a couple shots to the head, you know, you're kind of not, not with us anymore. You're in all kinds of pain. You've already been knocked to the ground. You're being held down by your throat. And, you know, other horrible things are about to befall you. So the reason that we get overwhelmed is simply because we haven't put ourselves in the situation. So this is just like, uh, you know, if if I see an oncoming car and it's crossing into my lane, I'm going to try to get out of the way. If I smell smoke in my house, I'm, I'm going to verify that I'm going to get out of the house. You know, those aren't mystical foreboding things that I have nightmares about. But violence is different. The woman with the vacuum cleaner, she won, yet, do you think she still feels 100%, 100% safe in her home? No. No, she's never not going to be listening. What was that? Is that somebody outside? I mean, and that's, that's after a, a victorious positive outcome. Violence is uh, so fundamentally different uh, in terms of how we process it and how we store it after the fact. and. You know, to the extent that we really sort of have to recontextualize what it means to win in the first place. Yeah, Because it, it, you can win, but it's, it's going to stick with you.
0: Right. It's going to, it's going to burn itself into your, into your brain. Uh, and that's not something that sometimes that people even can re- recover from. It can, yeah. Yeah, that shell shock type thing, you know, where it just lives, lives inside them forever and changes their whole trajectory of their life after that um but then there's people listening who have more of that i think a, a common thought process when it comes to this is well why would i ever that's never going to happen to me i that's just movie stuff you know i i'm not yeah. you know what are you what are you liam neeson and and you know you got to be able to to, you know, learn all this crazy stuff and, and, you know, or, you know, uh, who's the other Steven Segal? you know, and you're just gonna like, <laughs> you know, be able to handle it all calm, cool and collected. But I, I think, I think you can't have your head in the sand when it comes to this stuff. I think we're all vulnerable. We all have the capacity to be, to be vulnerable or to be in a situation that, uh, could have an outcome that puts us in, in, in jeopardy. Well,
1: that, that's very true. And, you know, it's a, that, that's a common objection. Come on. What what are the odds? You know, I'm not gonna, okay, fair enough. Maybe. Um, and if you prefer to engage with the subject by not engaging with the subject, okay. But the problem is most of the people who rationalize not engaging with the subject really just don't want to engage with the subject, which means this is already scary for them. And it's already occupying way too much real estate. And we can, we can sort of like, you know, squeeze that down. You know, the, the concern never goes completely away, nor should it, because, you know, th- these are, are, are things that sort of, uh, you know, stay in our brain that our, our self-protective mechanisms, you know, they can do their job by reminding us not to get too complacent, you know, when we're moving from point A to point B, you know, after dark in a parking lot, what have you. But because it's not that complex a problem to solve, just to have a few, you know, sort of tools at your disposal, they don't take a lot of practice. They really take willingness. Um one of the things that you may recall from when we recorded all of that uh, information is there wasn't anything that was mechanically hard to do. And that was by design uh, because if it takes practice, it's only going to be of value to people who practice, which is not most people, you know, the, the martial arts route, which is a great route uh, for all kinds of reasons, but it doesn't give you an immediate solution. What we put together uh, is is more immediate, uh, but you you have to have the stomach to uh, to unleash it because some of it's uh, uh pretty ferocious, I yeah. guess for lack of, lack of a better word.
0: Yeah, for I like that word ferocious. Actually, looking at the lion that's over my shoulder here behind me, <laughs> <you> know, I, <laughs> I, I that, but pictures like that empower me, you know, because that's, a, yeah. that's one of the world the world's finest animals, you know. Thank you so much for listening to the strong by design podcast to help our show, reach more listeners just like you. Please let us know how we've changed your life by leaving a five star rating and review on iTunes. Go to strong by design podcast.com. That's strong by design Let's get back to the show. The program was specifically designed for the person who does have no or little martial art experience. Um, It's about real world movements. That's why it's called real life self-defense. It's about the person who has zero fighting skill, zero um, experience in hand-to-hand combat, or defending themselves in a life or or death situation. And it's taking stuff that you have done physically over the course of your life and translating that into very realistic and effective movement patterns that you can use and incorporate in a struggle, in a physical struggle or altercation with somebody who's looking to, to hurt you. Um, and I think that's a big, when people see self-defense, they immediately think martial arts. They they, they put the two same, they put them together, right? I think some, some, some people don't even see a difference between, they, they would almost mm-hmm. define them the same way, but there are two di- very different things. Um, there's all kinds of different styles of martial arts, right? My son does Taekwondo. There's Judo, right? There's kung fu there's jujitsu there's like there's i mean i don't know there's probably 50 to 100 different styles of of martial art tai chi is a type of martial art isn't it maybe i don't know but but that's that's all that's like not uh, non-aggressive stuff um so um so for the person who's who's listening, who's saying, well, it's, it still sounds like it might be too complicated or too much of an ordeal to try and learn stuff like this that I can uh, apply effectively in my life. What would you say?
1: Well, I would say that, uh, well, that that's not the case. And you're, you're right. A lot of people conflate martial arts with self-defense. And one of the reasons that happens a lot is because, um, you know very civic minded, well-intentioned people who happen to teach martial arts. Well, you know, they'll put on a seminar. It's a a self-defense seminar. No, it's a karate seminar. It is a Taekwondo seminar. It's like you can, I can tell you exactly what those techniques are, you know, with, within the the curriculum that that you teach. This is different than that. Um, If if anything that is martial arts derived is skill-based and, there, again, nothing wrong with that. That's that's your better, more complete answer, but that's a huge commitment. And it doesn't answer the question tonight. It doesn't answer the question three weeks from now. You have to have a certain skill level in order to, you know, be conversant with those particular movements. The, the, just The whole, you know, sort of uh, you know, doctrine of uh, response and each of those uh, styles that you talked about all have sort of different uh, th- philosophies in terms of, you know, the, the Korean arts, Taekwondo in particular, prioritizes kicking. but It's it's about a 70-30 uh, proposition, but that looks cool. It's very non-functional. Uh, yes, there's going to be a couple of Taekwondo guys that are so skilled that they can do it, you know, on ice, in the snow, on gravel they are not representative of, you know, what do we say? You know, your mileage may vary. Um, You you can find outstanding examples within any martial arts style of guys who can just do really amazing things. But again, we're talking about exceptionally uh, skilled people in a exceptionally skill rich sort of solution. And what, uh, what was interesting to me as uh, I went through my my kind of training evolution because initially I was training cops, corrections officers, the military personnel, military personnel really more in the context of who had peacekeeping missions who like would have to take people and secure them, and you know, place them in custody, that sort of thing. Then 9-11 happened. And uh, I did a considerable amount of work with the airline industry. Well, what, what is that? Well, we're talking about either somebody who's just being disruptive or possibly a terrorist. And if it's a terrorist, we handle that differently. What do we do? Well, we, we do whatever it takes. And that's, that's a little bit more uh, primal, we'll say, than uh, trying to, you know, control somebody who's maybe just off their meds and freaked out about flying all of a sudden, you know, the, the diff- different problems require different solutions. But suddenly these uh, cabin crews had to have capability to address all of that and what's perhaps uh, surprising to most people is that the more serious the situation the easier the decisions are the simpler uh, the responses controlling people it's one of the reasons why uh, cops get beat up all the time because they have been trained for the last couple of decades to try to control subjects you know not to hit them and that sort of thing i mean some sometimes they do but that it typically starts with okay sir you're under arrest and uh, once the hands go on, the fight starts, the the suspect has, has no policy restraints. They can do whatever they want. The cop has to sort of work their way up this convoluted chain of uh, ever more uh, serious interventions. Uh, now, that's a whole different uh, environment, different uh, range of expectations than, say, someone like a cabin crew member who's, you know, Going to try to kill a terrorist with a coffee pot or that mallet that they break up the ice cubes with. You know, that's that's about as simple as simple gets. What there's nothing skill-based about knocking somebody on the head repeatedly with a coffee pot. How do you practice that? You really don't. You, but you have to be willing. That's again the thing. It's 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 much more the behavioral than the mechanical for a lot of that stuff. So the things that we capture uh within the, uh, the context of our uh, video course are things that are about as complicated as that coffee pot. You know, you just have to be willing to do them. Um, the, and the only time we ever moved into anything that was kind of complex is because we had a standalone presentation, uh, that had to do with like breaking up fights. Maybe, you know, you've had a friend and he's, Making poor choices, maybe he's had a little too much to drink. Well, you're not going to you know start clocking him with the coffee pot. You're going to try to maybe, you know, wrestle him away from somebody, maybe direct them onto the onto the floor where maybe he can have a little time out and sort of you know think things through. That's much more mechanically complex than you know de- dealing with a high level, you know potentially you know lethal force encounter. The, those Those responses are far more simple uh, to do. And, and easier, and their effects are much more immediate. So wow. that, that's how I would sort of address the idea of this is probably still too complicated for me, Chris. I don't want to hear it.
0: <laughs> that was the long answer to it. I, I love it. No, but it's so true. And it, obviously, I have terrific insight on this program because I was part of uh, the, the making of it and got to be in front of you in a room in, here in our critical bench compound for a few days, and got to go through all of this movement with a group of other people here. We were all 100% um, committed and interested, and it was a terrific experience. Honestly, uh, to be able to to be able to be part of that, and to just all the great insight uh, that you brought to it uh, in in between each section, explaining why we would do. It this way, why we're learning it this way, you know, and everything just kind of flowed and made so much sense. So it it really is for anyone listening at this point, it's, it's such a sensibly made thing because it's, it's made for the common man or woman who has, like I said, no experience at all and how they would react, respond in these situations that they didn't see coming, but they can make these, uh, fast decisions, and, and respond uh, appropriately. Hope you enjoyed part one of the real life self-defense episode with Mike Gillette. Please stay tuned for part two in the next episode released here on Strong by Design. If you found value in today's episode, please subscribe so that more people can find out about our show. Plus, you don't wanna miss any future episodes with the amazing guests and topics we have lined up for you.